This episode of Where to Begin With will feature heavy spoilers of the movie Paranormal Activity from 2008. If you have never seen the movie before and wish to take part in this series by submitting a review for the next episode, then hit pause, go away, watch the movie and come back and listen to the show. Alternatively, if you watched the movie before or you just don't care, just continue listening on. Don't see you weren't warned. High def camera on. My girlfriend Katie, she thinks there's something in the house. I don't know. You believe me, right? I think we're gonna have a very interesting time capturing whatever paranormal phenomena is occurring or is not occurring. And welcome back to another season of Where To Begin With. This is season two, episode number one. I'm your host, Duncan McLeish. Hopefully you had a fantastic new year and a great Christmas and you are back ready to learn to sit at the school of the cinephile and continue a journey to broaden your horizons. Now, this season, unlike the previous season, which tackled, you know, a medium which... It's fairly long in the tooth, Jalo Cinema having its heyday from 1970 through to about 1974, and some of the movies that spun out beyond. This one is a far more recent subgenre. Yes, its roots go way back to the 80s for sure, and actually its roots go even further back than that, but we are specifically looking at film footage, um, a genre, so to speak, that has filmed dominance since about 2007-2008 and onwards in terms of mainstream appeal and it continues to be a fertile playground for filmmakers working on micro budgets or studios trying to disguise movies as more rustic, (laughs) more rough and ready, more lo-fi than they actually are. They are a vehicle for very clever marketing At the most, they are movies which really dare you to suspend your disbelief that what you're watching is not fiction. And at their best, they are movies that, even with that contrivance, will still terrify the ever-loving fuck out of you. 
it's an interesting subgenre, if I'm honest, and one that I have more than just a dalliance in terms of an interest. I've been a fan for a while, but I would be lying if I say that I actively go out my way to seek every single instance of a found footage movie. Like a lot of genres, Giallo included from the previous season, it becomes so saturated with clones and imitations that ultimately where you are left is a handful of incredible titles, a plethora of great titles, and a complete smorgasbord of absolute tosh. (laughs) So much derivative nonsense out there. As you will be accustomed to if you went through season one of where to begin with, I am going to set out my stall, my case, and over the next ten episodes in this season, I'm going to give you ten movies that I think cover a wide berth of interest and filmmaking styles and storytelling to give you a full-on grounding in the film footage and full documentary genre. Now, I know what you're thinking. Duncan, this could be quite interesting. Lots of found footage horror movies abound. Well, there is that for sure, but kind of full documentary and found footage extends beyond the genre. So, over the 10 episodes, it ain't just horror movies that you're doing on this run. We are going to experiment and have some fun looking at movies that stretch the technique out there a little bit further. So hopefully you will enjoy your journey with me through this season. Now at the end of this episode we will be hearing those that partook in the final episode of season number one by sitting down and watching the last Jallo movie that I asked you to watch which was E.B. or Blood by Mario Bava. So they will be coming up at the end of the episode. But shall we get into a little bit of chatting about my first pick which is Paranormal Activity. Now, I know what you're thinking, Duncan, obvious pick. Obvs. In fact, why are we not going with Blair Witch Project? And I can see why you would think that. But, as you'll remember, the first episode of season one, we sat down and did Bird with a Crystal Plumage, which, I mean, arguably is the movie that sets out the stall for what Giallo will be. Once again, not the first movie by any stretch of the imagination, but one of the ones that brings dominance, attention, and then changes the course of filmmaking. It's hard to argue that The Blair Witch Project isn't maybe up there amongst one of the most influential horror movies of all time, but certainly one of the most profitable. But did it set a trend of filmmakers making found footage movies in its wake? And the short answer is no. They do exist, but there isn't many of them. After you get the appearance of Paranormal Activity and its worldwide success generates a lot of money for very little money put in, we are almost inundated. There is a deluge of different found footage titles making their way to the cinema. And like I say, it's a a format that is still incredibly profitable and one that a lot of indie filmmakers, first-time filmmakers, or those that just want to shove something up on Amazon Prime, um, kind of flock to because of its easy-to-use aesthetic. They're also very cheap to make sequels and they all kind of have the same setup. And you don't necessarily need to have to write an ending. You can cast unknowns. In fact, it's better if you do. And that's kind of where it flourishes, where it shines. So with that in mind, it makes sense 
that we look at paranormal activity, a trendsetter to say the least. Now, truth be told, if you've ever listened to me chat on my other podcast, Podcast Under the Stairs, you'll know I'm not the biggest fan of this movie, but I do understand its importance. I saw this movie a long time ago. I saw it when it did its theatre run, but truth be told, I'd seen it before. Back in my youth, (laughs) and I wasn't even that young when this movie came out, uh, a while ago, let's put it that way, this movie was doing the rounds in um, original edit on the torrent sites with its original ending. And that's where I first saw this. So this would have been early 2008-ish. I got a, a kind of bootleg copy of this movie and sat, watched it on my computer at my home with the headphones in and ter- terrified ever loving fuck at me is the easiest way to say it. I was sweating out of orifices that we won't talk about on this on this recording. It really got under my skin. And then I'd kind of forgotten about it. I was going through this weird little binge fest of all these little kind of found footage horror movies off the back of finally acquiring a copy of The Last Broadcast, a movie that I'd seen when I worked at a video store back in the early 2000s. Now, that movie, for whatever reason, kept reoccurring to me in dreams about 2008 time. And I would dream about it every single night and did dream about it every single night until I bought it at which point the dream stopped and I got into this kind of found footage kick and it's where I started seeing a lot of the movies in between Blair Witch Project and Paranormal Activity. And I remember finding this one because there was a lot of buzz on the uh, on the, the internet about it and checking it out and like I say, seeing it with its original ending. Fascinatingly enough, this ending was recommended to be changed by Steven Spielberg who suggested that they, they change the ending. And if Spielberg tells you to change the end of your movie, you change the end of your movie. And it worked out for the best for them, didn't it really? The ending that came, whilst being a bit more abstract and aloof, certainly delivers the opportunity for the many sequels that this movie spawns. Whilst I'm not the biggest fan of it, I do appreciate what it does. It is a very simple setup. You know, there is a house... We have a family in there. Some things are going a bit weird in the house. Uh, We think it might be haunted. We're going to set up some cameras to see if we can catch it. At every point, we get the kind of text box cliches of a horror movie. You know, we'll bring in a spiritualist. He'll tell you not to interact. Not to, you don't, almost like the ghost whisperer. You don't acknowledge the ghost. You don't look at the ghost. You know, it's like Caesar Milan, ghost hunter. Um, We get, you get a lot of that in the, in the setup, you have the very religious maid or housekeeper who leaves the house. Um, we've got the Ouija board. We'll have the internet search. You know, all the setups that you will get from this point onwards. But to be honest, you've seen in movies leading up to this, just not found footage movies. It packages it all together. It uses clever effects, but doesn't overdo it. There are prolonged sections of just people interacting and a lot of steady cam shots into the darkness, which, when we are in 2021, is basically what Invisible Man did last year, and much to its credit. Sometimes staring at something, believing that you should be seeing something in the dark, is more terrifying than seeing something in the dark. 
This is a movie that actually doesn't show you anything, <laughs> like really. Um, it's you know characters acting oddly, weird noises, and swinging chandeliers. But the tension that is ramped up throughout the movie is what benefits it. Film footage, I've always said, is uh, a really fertile ground for sound design, and some of the best examples in the genre will play upon silence and crash bangs, loud pops. Um, or just eerie, unsettling noise in the background. And this is no exception. This is what you get in paranormal activity. It's the whispers in the dark. It's the sims of things falling over. It's the, the creaking floorboard, the door shutting downstairs. All these things are captured perfectly. And it works perfectly in the movie. The cast, I mean, to be honest, they feel normal. They, you know, they don't feel like actors, and that probably aids it very much like the Blair Witch Project has the same sort of contrivance. You know that they're actors, but they are so human in their portrayal that it's difficult and very easy to forget that they are, in fact, actors. I hate both leads in this movie with a passion, but that just adds to the fact that I believe that there are people out there that would act this way. I see a little bit of people I've met before in these characters. So it grounds it. It's a smart move. The movie itself, I mean, it, it comes with not the clever marketing campaign that a Blair Witch Project would have in terms of setting up a, you know, a, a film mythology, uh, websites, fake documentaries and online message boards. This movie went for a much more direct, concise, in-your-face marketing campaign. It was simply showing the audience reactions to seeing the movie. And that in itself with taglines like the scariest movie you'll ever see, was enough to plant bums in seats when it made its cinema run. And to be honest with you, I jumped out my skin more than a few times sitting in a packed cinema watching this movie. Even though I'd seen it in a bootleg copy and I knew the scares were coming, the the almost electric environment of the cinema it empowered me to lower my guards in places that I shouldn't, and the after effect was quite astounding. Paranormal Activity might not be the best example of found footage. It might not be the best found footage movie. Case in point, I don't even think it's in the top five, if I'm honest, but it is hard to argue its cultural impact in the film world. It really has set the tone for better or worse the environment and the filmmaking and the storytelling that is required to make a movie in this subgenre. So your homework, ladies and gents, if you care to have a crack at it, is to go away and watch Paranormal Activity. Now I know what you're thinking. Duncan, I've seen this movie many times. I don't need to go and watch it again. We'll sit down with a critical eye this time. We don't always do that. We sometimes just go and watch a movie for the comfort factor of knowing we've seen it before. But your mission is to go away and check out this movie. Now, there is a tighter time scale than general. The big reason behind the tighter time scale is that the Where to Begin With series is going to land mid-month from now on um, as a way to kind of revamp the Teapot's collective formats. This one will always arrive the second week. So realistically, you have about two and a half weeks to watch this movie and get your review in. Reviews must be into me, no later 
than Thursday the 11th of February. The episode will drop on Friday the 12th. So, I want your review of Paranormal Activity. I want your grade. I want it in for Thursday the 11th of February. The episode is dropping on the 12th, which is the Friday. It'll be interesting to see where you come away with this one. It'll be interesting to see if we bring on new listeners. Jallo is always an uphill struggle for me to get people interested in. And I know that some regular people on the old podcast under the stairs page have started to show a bit of an interest, specifically when I mentioned fan footage would be the topic. My goal and aim in this season is to not only make you go back over movies that you have seen before, but hopefully throw you some curveballs. The fact we're including full documentaries in here as well. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm wanting to see how far we can stretch this. We only have 10 episodes, but there is a, 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 I mean, a, an incredible amount of movies within this genre that we can watch. So it'll be interesting to see where you land. Get them in. For the 11th of February, your reviews of Paranormal Activity. Right, let's conclude business from Season 1, shall we? Uh, We have some reviews, and those reviews were for a bit of blood. Here we go. Hi, Duncan and Teapots listeners. Happy New Year, everyone. I hope you're all enjoying your 2021. It's Kate Pollock here with my final review of the season of Where to Begin With. And we're finishing with A Bay of Blood, or as it's also known, Twitch of the Death Nerve, which, in my opinion, is a much cooler title. Um, and it seems to be the general opinion of the horror community. So, yeah, we're all in agreement there. Um, so let's start at the beginning with this one. This opening sequence is nothing short but fucking awesome. You've got the Gothic Mansion, you've got this beautiful and haunting cinematography, the set design is amazing. It kind of like starts the scene with this very unsettling squeak of this wheelchair. Um, You've got a thunderstorm outside um, and this score is absolute gorgeous score as we follow around this old lady who's wheelchair bound um, and it's all very kind of like haunted house type vibes and it the score it builds this crescendo as um, this old lady she is suddenly murdered um, by hanging as her chair is kicked out from under her and her head is forced into a noose it's noose sorry um, it's pretty cold um, and from there the scene just goes into high gear um, this is emphasized by the sudden change in the score gone are these melodic piano chords and emotive strings um, and instead we have this sort of crashing cymbal paired together with this um, really kind of quick zoom in and quick cuts to contrast against the relaxed and long shots that we've been lulled by moments before I mean honestly I could talk ad nauseum about this opening alone I mean I won't don't worry <laughs> but it is fantastic um, it just does everything for me um, because now on top of everything else that I've just mentioned we have our first little twist of the many twists and turns that this movie delivers we see the cold-blooded murder of this poor disabled old lady and then the camera pans to show the sort of typical black leather gloves that we associate with the giallo killer but unlike normal giallo the camera keeps going to reveal the killer the only time i've seen this happy happen sorry so early on is in deep red but that's more of a hiding in plain sight thing this is deliberate and obvious and so already our expectations are turned on their head and a moment later this guy who we actually find out is the countess is the woman who's just been killed her husband absolute dick he's also murdered and this time by stabbing so that's much more sort of like you know in line with the jello sort of thing and they've got that really bright red gooey thick blood that i just love so much um i know some people don't but i just (laughs) it just makes me smile um and this time we don't see the killer but 
Now, as an audience member, I am completely geared up for what this film has to offer. And honestly, it doesn't disappoint. So throughout this movie, as I've said, we've got these twists and turns galore. It's, it's kind of a whodunit, especially because the main motive is money. Um, and that's often the case for, for the sort of whodunit subgenre. And there are a lot of suspects. All but one are after this estate. But then underneath that, there are family dramas and scandals to further stir the pot. And this film does a really great job at keeping the mystery and suspense going. Um, to quote Randy Meeks, everybody's a suspect. <laughs> and basically, yeah, everyone is killing everyone. And it's so fucking good. The kills in this are ace. We have 13 kills in total, I believe, a very high body count. And this is where we delve into more of the slasher genre. Now, of course, this was in 1971, way before the slasher genre even was really a thing. Um, this film is said to have kickstarted a lot of that. Um, and when you watch movies like Friday the 13th, one and especially part two, it's really not hard to see why. Not only is the film sort of mainly set at a lake, a bay, you know, with a bunch of horny teenagers having a holiday break there. Um, and we ha but we also have two kills that are basically replicas from this film. You've got two lovers going at it and getting speared through to the bed. And then you've got another guy getting savaged in the face with this big blade. I think the weapons are a bit different between the two movies, but, you know, there's definite parallels to be seen. Um, although I would say that A Bay of Blood um, is a lot gorier um, than, than Friday the 13th, one or two. You know, for example, the guy gets bladed, for lack of a better term, um, Robert, I think he was called. Um, you know, he continues to blink, even with the blade sort of deeply embedded in his face. And like the couple who get sort of speared by this fishing, they get basically skewered by this fishing spear. Um, and they are still writhing around, they're trapped like bugs, which is kind of apt considering that one of the characters in this film does have a bug fascination. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, you know, in A Bay of Blood, the practical effects are absolutely fantastic. I'm, I'm really not surprised that someone wants to emulate them. Um, other notable kills include one of the teenagers being chased um, and then having her throat torn out by this like hooked blade from behind. There's this really gnarly close-up and again the practical effects hold up really well. Um, there's this really cool decapitation as well where we see the neck muscle and bone explodes like blood flying out and everything it's really gross and visceral um this actually also reminded me a bit of mrs Voorhees' decapitation thinking about it to be honest um but one other bit i wanted to mention was the reveal of the countess's husband's body with the squid all over it you know you've got this wet slimy gray huge squid sliding all over the face of this bloated corpse and it is every bit as gross as it sounds i actually put my hand to my mouth when i was watching it's that gross um but yeah it's so so good um this me i mean this movie has kills for days and if you enjoy a bit of gore with your slashes especially if you appreciate like good practical effects then you won't be disappointed Moving on, um, the pace of this film is so good. This is not only because there seems to be kills like every few minutes from the offset, um, but the plot is intriguing and well scripted. There's no filler here and the acting for the most part is pretty good. I wasn't overly keen on Renata in terms of performance. But I did like her character and I thought her quite interesting. And although she's pretty evil, she's a strong female character whose drive and for the most part coldness, um, apart from when it comes to her dad, um, sort of juxtaposes quite nicely with the frivolity and sensualism of some of the other female characters that we have here. Um, I really enjoyed Anna, the fortune teller. She was... <laughs> She was just so damn extra. She just completely drew my attention anytime she was on screen and I just thought she was great. 
Overall, the characters are either pretty deviant or provoke empathy, and both are done to good effect. The web that they all spin together is very well executed and also pretty believable within the constraints of the film. There's always a bit of sensationalism, I find, in these movies, um, but, you know, money and revenge are things that we can understand and get behind. So although the kills are quite over the top, which, you know, is no bad thing, as a sort of, you know, just alluded to, um, but, you know, the motives are rooted in realism, which grounds the film quite nicely, I think. Um, however, you know, um, there is a ton of fun to be had with this film and there's a humour to it that's it's just, it's really just quite delightful. The score, as I've mentioned before, does have these beautiful classic cool moments, um, but it also has this much lighter, almost playful side to it to offset the brutality occurring in the movie. Um, this is a movie that doesn't seem to take itself too seriously, and the score really underlines that. I very much enjoyed it for the levity it brought. Um, there are moments of comedy as well throughout this film. Um, an example of this is this quick cut between two scenes. We go from this sensual scene, it's near the beginning, between Frank and his mistress uh, Laura I think she's called um, and he's like touching her up and things she's sort of all naked and whatnot and then suddenly it quick cuts to Simon savagely biting into this bulbous slimy squid and honestly on first watch it just looked like an oversized swollen ball bag to me <laughs> um, but the contrast is really great and it just really snaps you out of this sort of saucy moment where like Laura stood naked and everything to this oversized swollen ball bag basically just <laughs> Um, so yeah, that made me laugh. Um, in addition, the ending also had me had me proper laugh out loud. Really, um, I know, like I've sort of gone back and listened to um, a few peeps, but um, like their thoughts on the ending and things, because um, it kind of just came out of left field. Um, and I know that some people don't really kind of get away with it, but it really just um got me um to have this you know after everything the scheming couple have gone through to be off like that and by your kids no less just sort of playing a game um it just really pulled the rug out from under me and um i really just felt like this was mario barber having a bit of fun with this audience like ah did you did you really think we were done you know that that kind of thing um so for me the ending just kind of topped it all off nicely um i mean it might be a little bit silly i mean these kids you know I can't imagine that they wouldn't have known what they've done in some sort of... They'd have known something was wrong, I think. But honestly, I just didn't really care um, because it was just very unexpected and, and it made me laugh. <laughs> um, what also works well is that Bava knows when not to use score. So right at the end during Simon's death scene, um, there is no score or music at all. Now, Simon is the Countess's son um, and he's the one character whose motive for murder is... Um, you know based in emotion and he's the character I think that we can empathize with most I think um, so therefore when you know he is eventually killed for being in line to the countess's inheritance I really felt for him and the tragedy of his death is further sort of emphasized by there being no score um, as and all you know as he's being killed he's sort of being impaled by his fish hook and all we hear is uh, not hook sorry spear um, and all we hear are his cries of pain as he chokes on his own blood it's really elongated the camera sort of zooms in on his face um, and otherwise you know it just sort of shows the struggle between him and, and Albert who's killing him um, and then after that Albert and Renata leave and the score comes back in it's that slow classical score um, 
And this moment is really just sort of a lament as Simon is displayed for the audience. The camera kind of pans out to show him impaled to the wall by his own fishing spear and his head lolls on the last beat before the scene cuts. And the whole sequence is just really powerful, I think, and a a real combination of all the elements of, of great score, great acting and really great camera work. I've mentioned the cinematography. Um, I mean, fuck. I mean, if it's one thing that I've taken away from this series is that the Italians know how to shoot a beautiful movie. And this is no exception. You've got the lush green of the wood, the sparkling waters of the bay, the shadows and the moonlight. I mean, it's just gorgeous. The camera work pairs wonderfully with it. And it's so carefully crafted to either shock the audience or allowed it to be really drawn into a moment, you know, to really savour what's happening on screen. It's an absolute masterclass and not anything less than what I'd expect from someone like Mario Bava. This film, it was such an excellent one to end the season with. It really just encompasses so much of what makes a giallo, but it also isn't afraid to draw outside the lines and go for the throat. I'll definitely be looking out for this on Blu-ray. For me, it's a 4.5 out of 5. It's also massively encouraged me to look into other Mario Bava works in future. So yeah, really excited for that. In close, I've had such a blast following this series. I really have. It's opened my eyes to a wealth of jello that I'd only barely touched on previously. Um, So yeah, I can't wait to explore and learn more. Sorry, I can't wait to explore and learn more about it independently. Um, Thanks so much for all the work that you've done for this, Duncan. And um, you know, please be aware that I may well hit you up for recommendations in future. (laughs) Um, But something tells me that you may not mind that. (laughs) Um, I'm really excited to see where we'll be heading on to season two. And as usual, I can't wait to hear everyone else's thoughts on A Bay of Blood. Bye, everybody. Keep safe. Take it easy. And thanks very much to Kate Pollock for sending in that review. Our final review was submitted by David Garrett Jr. David says... Hello, Duncan and Teapots Collective listeners. David Garrett Jr. here back again for Where to Begin with Giallo. And this is being the final one here with A Bay of Blood. Now, this is a film that I actually had never heard of until I started listening to podcasts. And I made it a point to see it... And then it intrigued me that this movie helped to spark the slasher craze that hit the United States. And I did read up somewhere that a lot of famous directors really kind of look at this one as inspiration and really enjoy this. Now, this classic comes from Mario Bava, who is one of the best Italian directors, not just in the horror genre, but from everything I've kind of gathered in just Italian cinema history as well. And this is actually my second viewing for this movie here where we kind of get this cool opening sequence where it's the death of the heiress of Countess Frederica, who is Issa Miranda, which I thought was kind of a cool thing that they set it up to look like a suicide by, you know, putting a noose around her neck and then kicking out her wheelchair. And then from there, this movie kind of gets really wild. And I can see, Duncan, what you're saying, that that this isn't a traditional giallo film with everything that they do. Now, I really like that we get to see Frederica's killer from the beginning. It is her husband, what we'll learn later on, of Count Filippo Dinanti, who is Giovanni Nuvoletti. Now, he murdered her because he wants to sell off her land and she refuses to do so. And this has actually ruined their marriage because of this. But then the question becomes is that after he murders her, he gets stabbed to death almost immediately in this like first five minutes of this movie. And then the question becomes who killed him? Now, we get caught from there to see this Frank Ventura, who is Chris Avram, who he also wants to sell this bay, and he has heard about the death of the Countess, so he's trying to get his way up there, and we actually get to see him with his mistress of Laura, who will come into play and everything later. Now, the death of Filippo will also draw his daughter of Renata 
as well as her husband of Alberto. Now, part of this seems that she's kind of curious if she's going to inherit this bay or if it's going to go to someone else. So they kind of go up there with their children and they have this RV. Now, and there's also Simon, who is a local fisherman, who is kind of entangled in all of this. As it turns out, is that he's the illegitimate child of the Countess. And he actually finds the body of Filippo, but we also know that he's the one that actually murdered him and threw him in the bay. And then for whatever reason, took his body out of it as well, is that it actually seems like the will, the bay is going to actually go to him. And so... With Filippo being alive, he would actually get it, so that is where the murder for that comes. And then we end up seeing later on that Frank and Simon end up getting kind of entangled in everything here. But it's kind of interesting, though, is that Simon takes out on Laura, what happens to his mother, but he also should be worried about Frank as he's the true mastermind behind all of this, where she's more of a pawn. And then there's also this really eccentric couple of... Paul and Anna Fausati, which they don't want the bay to be sold off because they want everything to stay the way that it is. And he is really into the insect life that is there. So if this all kind of, you know, happens and gets sold off, he's going to lose what he has going there. Now, we also have this interesting group of young adults that is Luca, Bobby, Broomhilda, and Sylvie. Now, they end up getting entangled because they just wanted to come up to the bay to have like a good time. And then we get some cool deaths and after those initial kills, these are the ones that get picked off of next. And it really becomes a who's who and what's going on here is this movie doesn't have just one killer, but it has multiple ones. And there's kind of a like entangling story that happens here that spirals out of control. And a lot of it really becomes more and more kills are happening because something happens or somebody sees something or somebody learns something and you have to close up all these loose ends here and it's kind of cool how everything plays out i will say though i'm not a big fan of what happens at the end it just feels really cheesy to me and i mean i guess it fits in with everything that's going on in the movie and you know they get their just punishment and everything like that but i just wasn't a fan of what they end up doing there at the end i do think that the acting is pretty solid across the board i can believe their motives I will say it's a bit far-fetched and probably couldn't necessarily happen today, but I think back in the 70s, I could definitely see that. And this is actually kind of an interesting social commentary here as well about capitalism with how far greed would take people to do things and to go outside of that. I also like that the traditional gender roles are ignored here. We have Renata forces her husband to kill people and... I mean, she's willing to do it as well, but I mean, she really pretty much calls him out on being weak and then he has to prove himself and we see how far that changes him in the end. I think this movie is pretty interesting as well for this being my second viewing of it is I didn't necessarily remember who the killer was or how everything fell into place. But as I started watching this, it all started like falling that way. And then Duncan, what you were talking about to kind of bring that up again was that I didn't realize this came out at the height of the Giallo film. And this was almost trying to be like a last hurrah for it, especially because Baba had already done like Blood and Black Lace, which is much more in the like classical vein of this subgenre. But this one's definitely breaking the tropes, and I can see how the slasher genre kind of sprung from this as well. Kind of going along with that is that we have some great effects. I like how they're done practically, and they all looked real. Now, I do have an issue is that you can still see some people are breathing. Some people might not like the orangish blood, but, I mean, I'm a fan of it there. And then, I mean, there's literally kills here that are pulled right from this movie to be in, like, Friday the 13th. And, I mean, there's a couple of them that I know for a fact from Friday the 13th Part 2, which I think is kind of a cool thing, but... I mean, it's also kind of, you have to hold it against those movies is that they're just assuming nobody had seen these and probably weren't going to see them. But this day and age that we live in now, it kind of makes sense how, 
you know, globalized everything has become. I also really liked the theme song. I think for the most part, the soundtrack kind of fades in the background for me. I don't. I do think it's better than my initial view, and I didn't even really notice it. But I do, as I said, really like the theme song that we get here. That's pretty solid. And I mean, this one, I would say that if you're a fan of Giallos, I would definitely give this a one of viewing. And I mean, if you're a fan of the slasher film, I think you should watch this one because it kind of breaks the more of uh, murder mystery trope here, and we just get such a high body count. And I like how Bava does interesting ways of introducing characters to help get that up there as well. Not my favorite Giallo, but this one definitely has come up from the last viewing as. Originally, I just thought this was a good movie, and this one, I mean, I think is good and almost borderline on great. I just have some slight issues here and there. I mean, I kind of already went over them with, like, the... Some of the ideas are a little bit far-fetched, where we also have, you know, you can there's some slight issues I have with, like, characters breathing when they're supposed to be dead. Nothing to actually ruin the movie, but just some slight things that I have here. So, like I said, Duncan, I'm so glad that you put this on the list, gave me another reason to give it a rewatch, because it's been a couple of years in between viewings. And like I said, I came up on my rating for this one, and I'm now sitting on a 4.5 out of 5 for this. And I'm pretty excited to see where we're going to go for the next series for this, you know, where to begin with. As I already said in the last episode, I'm kind of bummed out that we're not going to be following Giallos anymore. But I can't wait to hear, you know, what gets revealed for that one and, you know, jump into that and kind of send in my reviews as I can as well. Once again, I hope you have a great holiday, Duncan, and I hope everybody else that, you know, celebrates whatever it is, you know, be safe out there. Have a great time. Excited to hear what everybody's thoughts were on this movie. David Garrett Jr. signing off. And thanks very much to David Garrett Jr. for his review. So there we go. That's season one officially over. Season two officially kicked off. 11th of February is your deadline to get your reviews in for Paranormal Activity. The episode will drop on the 12th. Thank you very much to all those that supported Season 1. I hope we get more people involved for Season 2 and I look forward to bringing you more episodes in the months to come. All that is left for me to say is if something strange is happening in your house maybe don't play with a Ouija board. This is Duncan McLeish from Where to Begin With Season 2 Episode 1. Until the next time.